Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 35, verses 16 to 29, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God Remains Faithful. Second Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, that verse tells us that God can't break his eternal promises. He must be and will forever remain true to himself, true to his word, the ever-promise-keeping God. One day, the great creator took an old man for a walk. The old man is Abram who has just organized his men into a raiding party in a daring act of bravado, rescued his nephew. But the four kings he had surprised and defeated might be back, and as his anxious thoughts overtook him at night, he wondered whether or not he'd be destroyed. And in one night, God took the old man for a walk. Fear not, he told Abram, I am your shield, and furthermore, I have reserved a great reward for you. And then in a moment of frustration and further anxiety, Abram tells God, what can you possibly give me? For I remain childless. It seems to me that the promise that the entire earth would be blessed through me seems strangely hollow against the background of my barren wife and a future that will end in obscurity and death and the extinction of my line. But God, as I said, has taken the old man for a walk. It was a cloudless night and the stars the Creator had made were dazzling overhead breathing that the presence of God filled the universe. His power was unending. And then came the words, Abram, count the stars. Look at the Milky Way and start counting. Abram says, it's hopeless, I can't. And God says, so shall your offspring be. The promise I made to you can't fail. Indeed, the promise I made to you is so much larger than you have imagined. Don't be limited by your present circumstances. Let your faith arise to the level of what I have promised you. Indeed, and Abram on that night whispered words to the Creator that have changed the course of human history. He simply said, I believe. And that night, the unbreakable covenant, the promise of God that could not fail, was ratified. But what if, as Paul writes to Timothy, what if the offspring of Abraham are faithless? What if they, through their sin, become a great, big, dysfunctional family? What then? And the answer is that God will not and cannot break his covenant that he made with Abraham. For once God has promised, he has then bound himself to his promise. And that, by the way, dear follower of Jesus, is what God has done for you in the cross of his Son. He has promised that you, the one who has put his faith in Christ, when you stand before the judgment, you will be judged not on your merits, but rather on the merits of Christ, your Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but that promise simply can't fail. God has staked his reputation and his glory on that. Well, we've been studying Genesis 25 to 36, a study that I've called Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. And today we've come to Genesis 35, verses 16 to 29, which, as we will see, has four separate incidents. Now, these incidents will do two things. They're going to remind us of the sins of Abraham's offspring. Yeah, that. But they'll also remind us of God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, his unwillingness to break covenant. 
Now then, these four incidents form a transition from one era to the next. We will see that great changes are about to take place. God's promises, however, will remain secure. We will see what the hymn writer wrote when he said, Change and decay and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. So let's begin with incident number one. It's in Genesis 35, verses 16 to 20. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Now, the birth of Benjamin actually completes the 12 tribes of Israel. He is the 12th son, and from this day on, when we think of Israel, we will think of the leaders of the 12 tribes. That is, the descendants of these 12 boys will make up the nation of Israel. But of course, as we see in this text, his birth results in the death of his mother, Rachel. You know, it's commonly forgotten that until recently, the birth of the next generation always presented itself as a mortal threat to women. It's been estimated that in the past, every 100th to 200th birth led to the death of the mother. Now, you have to imagine that women had a great many more children than, than is common today, and we get a sense that the death of a mother is not an uncommon tragedy. And as this labor is very difficult, Rachel is dying. And the midwife tries to comfort her and tells her that her death has resulted in the birth of her second son. But as she dies, she names that son Ben-Oni. So the prefix Ben means son, and Oni means either sorrow or trouble. He is the son that was born to her out of her trouble, out of her dying. But now, even though every other son born to Jacob was named by the mother, this son is the first one born to Jacob after he has met with God. He's a new man now. And out of his transformed nature, he renames the boy. He will be called Benjamin. There are several possible ways of understanding this name. Some have suggested that son of my right hand refers to the south rather than the north, whereas the other 11 were born in the north, that is, they were born in Padan Aram. This one is born in the south, that is, he's born in the promised land. See, in that sense, it may be that Jacob is saying, look, this is the son that's born in the very place that God has promised to Abraham. He represents the truth that God's word to Abraham stands fast. Now, that might be exactly what Jacob names him as he does, but it's also possible that son of my right hand symbolizes the hand of power. Listen to Exodus 15, verse 6. It says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Well, since most people are right-handed, the right hand of the warrior would be the hand in which he held his weapon. It would be he would hold his sword there. When the right hand was powerful, the warrior could inflict great damage on the battlefield. Son of my right hand would be a prayer that Benjamin would be a mighty man of God. But all of this against the background of Rachel's death. Our text tells us that she died close to Bethlehem, where we are told that Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. You know, when we come to 1 Samuel 10, verse 2, it's an incident about 1,000 years later, we find God saying to Saul, 
When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. Now, I mention this because her grave was clearly marked and known for generations. You know, later when Herod murders the babies at Bethlehem, Matthew would say that a voice was heard. Rachel was weeping for her children. Now, Matthew places the murder of the children beside the weeping of Rachel, not only because Rachel lay buried close to that very place where the children were butchered, but because Rachel is one of the mothers of Israel's children. Her place will always be an exalted place, and her voice of concern for her children is a reminder of God's great love for his people, the people of Israel. Now, we might ask, well, yeah, that may be true, but what of the hatred between Rachel and Leah? And what of Rachel's disappointing marriage? And what about those idols that she had stolen from her father and then had hidden in the bags of her camel? I mean, what about all of that? Now, look, it is true that Rachel's life did not turn out as she had desired. And yet there's a passage of Scripture that we might very easily miss unless we're directly looking for it. It's found in Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. You might remember that Ruth was a widow. She was a woman whose life also didn't turn out as she had imagined. But then she was about to marry a retired war veteran, a man by the name of Boaz. And as a result of their marriage, they would have a boy whom they would name Obed. And Obed would become the grandfather of King David, who was the greatest king in Israel, the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus. But as Boaz and Ruth are about to be married, the people of the land pronounce a blessing on the couple. They say to Boaz, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. You know, as far as these people were concerned, there was no greater blessing that they could have pronounced on Ruth than that God would make her as worthy as those two women whom God had chosen to fulfill in them his purposes. And so what do we make of Rachel? Rachel stands in that line, and her name will always be a highly honored name, for God chose her for an honorable purpose. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. God remains faithful even when the people He has chosen sometimes sin and sometimes go in the wrong direction and sometimes are deeply disappointed with their lives and sometimes become a dysfunctional family. We've seen that Moses wants us to remember Rachel, the woman who gave birth to the last two of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And so Rachel has died, and we now come to the second of the four incidents at the end of chapter 35. And this, like the last, is a sad incident. Genesis 35 verses 21 and 22 says, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. You know, Rachel's hardly died, and in a place near what was then the Tower of Ader, which may have been just south of Bethlehem or just outside of Jerusalem, a tower for people attending sheep, Reuben has sexual relations with Rachel's servant and his father's concubine, Bilhah. You'll remember that Bilhah is the mother of both Dan and Naphtali, two of Reuben's half-brothers. Now, we might wonder what's going on here. Has Reuben been infatuated with one of his father's wives? I think that's unlikely. This was surely not motivated by lust, but rather by politics and a desire to gain power over the family. Let me explain. Many of you remember the incident of Absalom, he's the son of David. As he was trying to seize the kingdom from his father, he was beginning a civil war. You might also remember that David had fled from Jerusalem, and as Absalom arrived in the city, he's armed with the rebels with him. And you might remember that one of the first acts that Absalom did, he, he called his counselor to him, and he asked his counselor what he should do now that he was in Jerusalem. So I'm reading 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 20 to 21. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. You see, the act of taking his father's concubines was seen as an act of seizing his father's leadership and establishing himself as the leader of the family. And here in Genesis, that's precisely what Reuben is doing. He knows that he's the firstborn, and in that sense, he's already established that he is the leader of the family. But he also knows that his father loves Rachel, and furthermore, he loves her son Joseph. And so Reuben is looking to establish his place of leadership. He knows no other approach than to take the secondary wife of Rachel, sleep with her, and establish that he will forever be the leader of the house of Jacob. But God remains faithful, even though this is still a dysfunctional family. Let me take you forward to Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. There Jacob is dying, and as he lies in his bed, he calls his 12 sons to him, and he's going to give a spirit-led prophetic word over each one of his sons. He begins with Reuben, his firstborn. So listen to his words. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so Reuben's position of leadership is taken from him. In other words, Reuben wanted to establish his position of leadership by, by lying with Bilhah, and instead, all he did was cancel out that leadership. And that principle that Reuben is stripped from leadership in Israel is reinforced in the rest of the First Testament. You know, for instance, listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, as it sets out the genealogical records of Israel. It begins with these words, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. 
I need to add another piece of information to that. According to Jacob, on his deathbed, the next two sons, that is Simeon and Levi, also would not be given leadership over the family. And that's because they slaughtered the men of the city of Shechem. Their violence and murder and revenge also canceled them out from leadership in Israel. And it is for that reason that after the death of Jacob, the leadership of the family fell to Judah. He's the fourth-born son. And as you know, Judah would be the tribe that produced the king. And eventually, Jesus, our Savior, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is born from Judah, the son that has preeminence in the family of Israel. He's the leader of Israel, and his is the leadership of the world. Yeah, Reuben's faithless. But God remained faithful. The story of salvation would not be disrupted by Reuben's faithlessness. Now, the third incident in the end of Genesis 35, it's found in verses 22b to 26. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, we won't say much about this, but we will pay attention that at the outset, something here seems to be an error. Our text says that all 12 sons were born in Padan Aram, whereas we know it's not true of Benjamin. He's born in Canaan. But even while that is true, there is another truth that Moses, who is the author of our book, wants us not to miss. The family of Jacob came out of Padan Aram to inherit the promised land, even as later, during the time of Moses, the sons of Israel will come out of Egypt to inherit the promised land. It's important then to include Benjamin in this list and not leave him out, for he also must be included in the grace of God that comes from exile and leads to the promised land. Now, to the fourth incident in this transitional chapter, and here I'm reading verses 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, from all indications, it would seem that Jacob had not visited his father since the days of his deception, when he dressed up as his brother and stole the Abrahamic blessing. Furthermore, it would seem that Isaac was attended at his death by both of his sons, both Jacob and Esau. Both of them are involved in burying him, and that little fact gives great hope to all dysfunctional families. I mean, we have to imagine the founders of these two nations, Esau, the founder of the Edomites, and Jacob, the founder of the Israelites. Here they are, two brothers with an atrocious history, attending their father at his dying bed and then as well, cooperating and burying him. Did you hear that? There is hope for those who have messed up everything. God can give grace. Proverbs 18 verse 19 says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarrelings like the bars of a castle. That may be true, but it's also true that God restores. He gives life from the dead. He he makes a way when there is no way. Jacob and Esau are united here. They're weeping together as brothers at the tomb of their father. But another question needs to be asked. Where was Isaac buried? You know, our passage says he's buried at Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, and it's directly west of the Dead Sea. 
But is there significance in that? Well, yeah, there is. Years later, when Jacob lay dying, he would give instructions regarding his own burying place. I'm reading here Genesis 49, 29 to 32. It says, Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And so the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, were buried in a common tomb. And furthermore, as Isaac is dying, he longs to be gathered to his people. There are those who have argued that the phrase gathered to his people meant only that his body would be put in a communal tomb. Not so. For Abraham was said to be gathered to his people, and then it was said he was buried in a communal tomb. You see, the communal tomb is just a symbol that there's another story yet to be told when God's deeply dysfunctional people will be reconciled and gathered together to be forever with the Lord. See, I find that phrase, gathered to his people, to be one of the most comforting things I can think of. See, the land that is to come seems so much less like a foreign land. When I think first that my Savior awaits me there, but so also do my people, God remains faithful. Transitions change and decay and all around I see. But O thou who changest not, abide with me. John, I just want to revisit something you just said just a few minutes ago. You said, there is hope for those who have messed up everything. I mean, that's an important thing to revisit, isn't it? Boy, it's so important to revisit it because when we think that our hope is determined by how well we do, we're so works-oriented, we're not people of faith at all. Um, Our hope is rooted in the promises of God. So you can't mess up badly enough. God is greater than our failures. We, We need to have hope. And thank you for raising that, Ben. I mean, if there's nothing else that we take from this series, it is this great hope that we have that God is faithful even when we are faithless. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every once in a while, an opportunity arises that's just hard to pass up. In fact, that's what I want to share with you today. For the next number of weeks, a group dedicated to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, have provided a match pledge gift of $125,000. So what does that mean? It means that you have the opportunity to make such an incredible difference in this ministry moving forward. So for every dollar so graciously given right now, another dollar will be given to the ministry up to $125,000. That means if you call us today with a gift of $100, it becomes $200. Or a gift of $1,000, it becomes $2,000, multiplying the opportunity to sustain and grow this Bible teaching and engagement ministry. So please join us in maximizing this generous pledge by calling us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donating securely online at Back to the Bible. 
www.backtothebible.ca. Your gift now doubled will support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt.